Welcome back to The Kicker, CJR's weekly podcast about journalism. I'm Pete Vernon, CJR Delacorte Fellow, filling in for Dave Uberti, who is on his way down to BuzzFeed headquarters in Lower Manhattan right now for a special interview with BuzzFeed Editor-in-Chief Ben Smith. Before we send it over to Dave, I'm joined by Kyle Pope, CJR Editor and Publisher. Hi, Kyle. How are you? And Christy Chisholm, CJR Senior Editor. Nice to see you. And we have you guys here because CJR has just released its spring print edition. So I wanted to chat real quickly about what we have and what people can be expecting to see between their fingertips. First, do we need like a Dave Uberti tracker to like watch his progress down to a <laughs> flat iron? <laughs> down on the one train, yeah. At this very moment, yeah, as little, we speak, Dave is on his way. Going down. <laughs> yeah, no, we're really excited. We um, published our spring print issue this week. It's all about local news, which is basically in crisis. I and everybody at CJR thought this is like one of the most important journalistic issues that we're all facing right now. The local news landscape has pretty much been wiped out. And that has, we learned in the um, 2016 election what at least one of the costs of that is, which is, you know, a lot of the country isn't being heard and, and a lot of readers' concerns are being addressed. So we thought it was, you know, important enough to devote 120 pages of newsprint to, and I think the issue turned out great. You know, local news, I think, is close to the hearts of most journalists, if not all journalists, because most of us work in local news, or if we don't anymore, we got our start there. And so the crisis hits close to home in a way. And, you know, local newspapers are the lifeblood of their communities in many ways, too. So it's an issue that's getting, I think, more focus since the election. And the nice news about this issue, too, is that it's not all doom and gloom. Some of what's in the issue is positive, too, and kind of possible solutions for the future of local news as people start to redirect energy back into some of those newsrooms. There's some cool experimentation going on. One of the stories is about nonprofits, which are becoming really important in funding local news. So we looked at one of the stories, looked at the different models of the nonprofit approach. We've got a really cool graphic that looks at who the big players in the nonprofit world are. On the other side, on the kind of more downbeat part of the spectrum, we have a map of parts of the country that aren't covered by news anymore. We have um, some really good essays by people about what the cost of losing out is. And there's a, I thought, a fascinating piece by Mike Oreskes, who uh, runs the editorial side of NPR, about being local sort of at some point stopped being cool for journalism, and it became part of being part of the great global village and being interconnected around the world, which clearly is important, but a lot of media outlets sort of lost their sense of their roots in the local communities, and we've seen what that means. We also have, like, there's some just lovely grace notes in the magazine. There's um, some kind of love letters from prominent reporters to the hometown papers where they got their start. There's a great selection of photographs of tiny newsrooms. I mean, a lot of these are like one or two person news operations. And and a lot of that is, I mean, that's where local news happens is, is at that kind of micro level. So we have photographs of those people. And I'm old enough, I'm just old, but I'm old enough <laughs> um, that, you know, when I started my career, the career path for most journalists was you start at a little place, you work yourself up to a bigger place, you work yourself up to a bigger place. And all along the way there, you sort of are mentored and trained and you learn the craft. That doesn't happen anymore, largely because a lot of those places are gone. And sort of what does that mean for journalism and what does that mean for, um, for an, an informed public? 
Absolutely. I think one of the uh, staff favorites in the issue is a piece about uh, local TV news and quote unquote why it never changes. That went live this morning uh, on Thursday, May 11th. And um, it's just a really well-written, delightful and kind of eye-opening piece about like just the local news TV landscape and why it's so hard to change broadcast. The, sh- the shorthand descriptor for us internally was, why does TV news still suck? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, both of you were instrumental in guiding this process into print. I'm excited for people to get to see it. And one of the pieces we have in there is a piece by Ben Smith and his wife, Leanna Zagar. And I'm going to momentarily throw it over to Dave, who is down at BuzzFeed headquarters with Ben to talk about uh, a number of different issues from how the internet has changed politics since Ben Smith got a start at Politico how BuzzFeed's role has changed in this new media environment, fake news, as well as a discussion about Trump's war on the press, and then coming back to our issue topic, the hope for local media on the internet. Ben Smith from BuzzFeed. Welcome to The Kicker. How's it going? Good. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for being on the show. I'm doing my best to take as much time out of your day as possible just to keep you from the news cycle. There's, so. there's nothing going on today, so it's fine. Right. Very slow day. Uh, we were just saying before the show, you said there's a blur in the 24 hours or so since this Comey news dropped. And I'm just kind of curious, in a situation like that, what's your first call? Where'd you hear the news and what's what's the first thing you did afterwards? I mean, I heard the news like everybody else from Twitter and and. You know, and and by the time I saw it, our you know our, we had a dozen reporters going all in, you know chasing it very right. very hard. Then yeah, mostly people don't need to be told to to chase the story right. like that. In fact, this is it's you know some of these Trump stories where it's just really Trump, right? Like his staff is scrambling the same as everybody else. You know, I think there's there's everyone is tra- it's sort of every it's like every reporter trying to sort of understand the shockwaves from this sort of centralized point. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I, I wanted to sort of broaden the discussion a little bit and take it back, maybe about a decade or so. Just talk a little bit about how the internet has affected politics, and then you know go more into where BuzzFeed fits within this changing environment. I think it's funny whenever I've met you, I just think back to when I was becoming politically aware. One of the first outlets I started reading a lot was Politico in about 2007 and 2008. I really loved it because my parents were avid newspaper readers. I would know everything in the political section of the New York Times before they did because I would read Ben Smith and you know Maggie Haberman and Glenn Thrush in, in Politico uh, beforehand. And I would argue that that was probably the most influential publication in shaping the style of political coverage over the following decade. And I'm just kind of curious from your standpoint, looking back on it, did you know at the time like what impact Politico would be having in sort of shaping political journalism, the way people consume political information? You know, I mean, I, I think that Politico, you know, one of the things that we did was essentially took the tools that bloggers had been using. And I, you know, and I, I had sort of come up writing a blog, but as a reporter who had a blog, which is now kind of dying, but, you know, but it, it became normal. But was, was then, I mean, I remember when I started writing a blog in 2004 for the New York Observer, the word blogger meant like columnist, among other things. It meant that you were not doing any journal reporting, that you were sort of commenting on the news, that you were expressing your opinions. And so the notion that there was this blog that was sort of conducted with sort of journalistic practices and standards was really weird. And I think what part of what Politico did was just take the tools of the web, which is to say like reverse chronological publishing that is speedy and posting documents, things that you know now we all take for granted, 
and professionalize them and to say like, oh, this is, we should take the sort of, the, you know, essentially the norms of political journalism and, and, and but, but with these new tools. And Politico generally matured over the next couple of years. And I think I recall you saying you felt the energy moving from blogs to Twitter in terms of where news would break. And I'm curious over that time period, was there any specific instances that really stood out in that regard where you think, wow, blogs really aren't where we put the information up first and it really is moving to the social web? You know, after the 2008 election, we at Politico thought that there would be the level of interest in the new Obama administration that there had been in the campaign. I think, you know, I think that's actually with Trump, it turned out to be true. With Obama, it was not. But but we created this thing called Politico 44, which was a minute by minute diary of the of the presidency, which was a kind of Twittery blog platform. And just that there was not an audience for that. People did not want to check in moment to moment on a single site's telling of what was happening. And I think around really particularly as the healthcare debate heated up you could just see that all of your sources all of your commenters and your peers were all having these conversations on twitter that used to happen on blogs the same fights the same scoops the same arguments were had just moved en masse to twitter and do you think that's more complicated now i mean i, I feel like on twitter the discussion is in large part driven by journalists but you also have people such as mike cernovich folks like that who obviously don't adhere to the same sort of standards and really have a toxic discussion at times. I mean, the toxicity used to be in the comment section, right? I think I, somebody once said that I had the, the, my political blog had the worst comment section on the internet. Right. Reflection of the author, right? Uh, basically, yeah. <laughs> but I think, you know, we sort of just let it, I, I didn't, you know, just we sort of let it grow wild. Nobody right. was paying any attention to it. And I think a lot of the toxicity of today's internet comes out of comment sections and forum conversations. But I, I mean, out of these social platforms were never controlled by journalists the way, you know, the way older platforms were. What do you see BuzzFeed's role in that environment, for example? You have this wide open platform. We know more now than ever, thanks in large part to BuzzFeed's reporting that it's populated by a lot of these hyperpartisan sites, a lot of fake news, quote unquote. I mean, what's BuzzFeed's role in that? And is it different from, say, mainstream organizations that exist in those spaces? A lot of the journalism we do is a lot like what other organizations do. Like, we try to get scoops. We have reporters deep in stories. We're doing investigations. I do think some a place that we're different is that there's a tradition and a kind of reflex in a lot of legacy organizations of seeing yourself as the gatekeeper. And I think that makes sense. If you're the New York Times and you have a lot of readers who get their New York Times on the doorstep every morning, it would be crazy to put in that print publication that hits their doorstep that is the main place they get their news. Here is a falsehood that you have not heard about and let us debunk it for you. Like that <laughs> right. makes no sense. Our audience is swimming in social media. They're they're on Twitter, they're on Facebook. They're seeing this torrent of information, some of it good, some of it bad, some of it in the middle. And and in fact that that information ecosystem is is part of their world. And so for us we see our role you know, both as reporting things that are true, but also helping people navigate this very complicated, polluted ecosystem. So that means debunking things that are false. It means trying to be transparent about where information is coming from. You know, here's a claim that you have probably seen being made, and here's where it's coming from, and this is why this person claims it's true. We have not been able to stand it up or knock it down, but here's what we know. And I think that that in this very messy environment, we, we think that that kind of transparency is what our audience wants. How do you pick your spots with that sort of thing? It just seems like there's so many things to choose from. I mean, it's difficult for me to sort of evaluate the power structures on right, the but what Like what's worth debunking? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I think that's, I mean, it's, you know, honestly, like when, you, when, it's, when it's very central to the conversation, I mean, one of our most widely read posts recently was right after the, uh, the House voted uh, to pass the, the AHCA. There was a, just a torrent of claims on social media about what it would do. 
um, you know, it would redistribute money from the poor to the rich, which was basically true. It would make rape a pre-existing condition. That was basically not true. And so uh, we had a day post that with a head, the title of was, which was, here is what is true and not true about the HCA that was incredibly widely read and shared. Right. Because I, the, you know, you're any, any normal person is just swimming in this sea of like questionable information and looking for a, a guide in it. I think it's fair to say that BuzzFeed has really distinguished itself with fake news reporting, Craig Silverman, and more recently with what Charlie Warzel is doing uh, with what he calls the upside down yeah. uh, media. I don't know what I think about that name, but he does a really awesome Did job. Did you watch Stranger Things? Uh, no, so I don't get Oh, you've got to watch yeah, That's the yeah, problem. Yeah. Well, I guess it's, it's, it's a, pre- a joke that only in Stranger Things, the upside down is like this sort of identical universe to our universe, but it's populated by monsters. And do they use fluoride-free toothpaste also? No fluoride in the upside down. Right. The gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. So I'm, I'm curious from their reporting, but also other, other stuff that you guys have been doing. I mean, what has shocked you about this environment, whether that's fake news, how people consume information, the Alex Joneses of the world? You know, I think I'm sort of less, in some ways, less shocked by the cynicism of trolls and of, you know, government propagandists and the sort of self-styled information warriors who are doing something that, like, on a larger scale than, than you know, than has been done before but when you think about the people who are out there deliberately lying and tricking people that's not a new practice and it's not new on the internet and it's also just sort of not new lying it's not you know, a brand new thing um one of the things that really interested in me was charlie wrote a bit about pizzagate which was the conspiracy theory that there's a washington dc pizza place where uh, was running a child sex ring and the thing is, when you write about some of these sort of alt-right, or which is a term that's become complicated, but these kind of new media, these sort of winking, cynical new media figures, people attack you on the internet and send you tweets with a picture of Pepe, but they're not really Pepe, but they're not really like making fact, having factual arguments with you. They're not pr- really pretending very hard to even believe what they're saying. Sure, They are sort of try- lying to discredit the idea of truth, maybe in some fancy sense, or just messing around and trolling. With Pizzagate, Charlie got torrents of email from people who believed it was true Mm. and who earnestly were trying to persuade him that he was missing a huge story that would win him a Pulitzer Prize if he could only get to the bottom of the scandal of this pizza place and the cover-up and John Podesta's emails. And if you think about the guy who brought the gun to that pizza, to come pizza, he was in earnest. He wasn't trolling. He was trying to rescue children. He was incredibly misguided and fed crazy information. But actually, the, you, it's hard to question his motives, right? And and I think that amid these stories, and, and in a way, there's this cynicism, this lack of good faith that makes you think all these people are in on the joke. There are a lot of people who are not in on the joke, and I think that's pretty disturbing. Do you think there's any way of ascertaining that whether people like Alex Jones are in on the joke? I mean, you know, that was obviously a question at his custody sure. trial in Austin last week, whether he's in on the joke. And I think, you know, ultimately... When you're dealing with public figures and actors, you know, what ultimately, you know, you're never going to answer the question of what's in their heart. And maybe that's not really the question reporters ought to be asking. And sometimes it's more complicated. Sometimes they're in a joke, sometimes they're not. I mean, I think one of, you know, Andrew Breitbart was always, he, he, there was something about his stunts where at least at times it was easy to, you could interpret him as, you know, essentially parodying media, trying to, um, but in a sense as being in on the joke. And his, followers are totally humorless. Like, that's their distinguishing characteristic. Mm. And it, it's, it, it's sort of strange to see the kind of, like, whatever you think of Drudge and of Breitbart and of that generation of these sort of internet figures, there was always kind of a wink to it. And I'm not saying that necessarily should make you think more or less of them. 
And I think you see then people who didn't catch the wink picking up the torch without the context. Since the election with the Trump administration, I mean, you've spoken about this on your podcast, but this is just one of the rolling debates within journalism. Thank you for all the plugs for my new podcast, Newsfeed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to it in a bit. But I'm just kind of curious, was there any sort of reevaluation of how to cover Trump, just given that the guy just doesn't tell the truth? I mean, it, it, that seems sort of like the baseline agreement in a lot of journalism relationships is, you know, we'll give you a fair shake if you tell us truthful information. I'm curious on how you communicate that to your reporters. I mean, Trump has never told the truth, right? This isn't some novel thing. He's exactly the person he was when he was lying to New York tabloid reporters 15, 20 years ago. And all through the campaign, he never told the truth. So I don't think it's not some new post-election thing. I think we were always pretty direct about that. I mean, it was most obvious when he, you know, McKay Coppins kind of got lucky and there was a snowstorm and he wound up being on a plane with Trump that was diverted to Mar-a-Lago and spent the night there, wrote a profile Trump didn't like, and Trump responded with just preposterous falsehoods about McKay leering at women at Mar-a-Lago, about, you know, I think McKay <laughs> said in the story that um, that Trump had looked at a picture on McKay's phone of McKay's wife and kind of leered at her. Trump then did not, like, trashed McKay's wife in public. But one of the things, it was just so obviously false, like just transparently false. And so I think that maybe to some degree clued us in to the fact that he just lies all the time, maybe a little earlier and allowed us to kind of shape our coverage with that realization. I mean, the fact that he lies so much does liberate you from one of the kind of conventions of access journalism because the deal in access journalism, which isn't my favorite kind of journalism, but access is important. And there's a kind of particularly television reporter who's able to get people and put them on the spot in a way that's incredibly powerful in the U.S. and globally. But the deal with that kind of access journalism is that once you've got the access, the person tells the truth. And it just has totally worthless to get access if people aren't sort of playing by that particular rule. And with regard to AIDS, I mean, this came up with the Comey thing. For example, there's a great Washington Post story about Sean Spicer unable to answer questions in the bushes on the White House lawn. I mean, does it matter if they're lying or they just don't know how to relay the president's message or maybe there's no message? Does that matter from a journalistic standpoint? The good spokespeople know what, like, are speaking to their bosses and, and understand. It's, I mean, yeah, there's not a lot of value in a spokesperson who doesn't know what go- is going on. I mean, I do think sometimes strategically you'll have spokespeople deliberately kept in the dark so that they can't reveal certain things but that's not what I mean, there's no, it's not that's not particularly what's happening here it's just trump being trump the sort of content that you guys publish is aside from the journalism sort of like the entertainment stuff is very optimistic and a lot of stuff in the obama administration you have like you know michelle obama slays in this dress or here's barack and justin trudeau's bromance I mean, is that something that you can do during the, the Trump era? Just have, have the happy content makes political culture into pop culture? There are a couple of things here. One is that we have, you know, a division between our news and entertainment sure. sides. And, and a lot of that stuff you're talking about was coming from our entertainment side, which is often mirroring, like, here's the conversation on the web. Here are the jokes. Here are the memes. And a lot of the memes and the jokes around Obama, I mean, and this is not rocket science. It's because Obama was extremely popular with the young people who populate the Internet. And Donald Trump is wildly unpopular with the young people who... Or, you know, not universally, and they're not homogenous, but if you think about web culture, it's driven by younger people. And if sure. you think about who watches Fox News, it's older people. I mean, like, this is, I feel like it's often overlooked in discussions of the culture wars, but age is this incredibly, in generations, or this, you know, incredibly stark dividing line. So I think a lot of our entertainment kind of just kind of mirror what the, what the online conversation is. I mean, Trump obviously lends himself to humor because he's sort of himself... 
he's a he's a perfect target for a certain kind of humor because he's doesn't laugh he won't laugh at himself. Mm. And Obama made himself a more difficult target at times. He liked to sort of be a little aside from the joke. He you know he kind of cultivated this sort of cool persona. He could be self deprecating. Right, and, and, and cool in a way that, you know, I think often did not probably didn't serve him well. If you think about, like, you know, were the Russians afraid of him? Like, no. And maybe it was that partly because his persona was so cool and analytical. Maybe. So I'm not sure that's necessarily praise for a president, but there was he had this sort of ironic detachment right. from his own persona and the presidency at times that yeah, I think if you think about, like, how hard it was for Saturday Night Live to find a good impersonator, mm. it's kind of, you know, that's, um, they've not had that problem with Trump. So BuzzFeed News has established itself. I think anyone who pays serious attention to the industry understands that there's some stragglers here and there. Give me a lay of the land. We're past the election now. What's, what are sort of the next steps for BuzzFeed? You know, a, a lot of different things at the same time. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, the Trump story and the broader sort of rise of a kind of global reaction is, is, is a huge story. And so we're, you know, staffing up in Germany right now, actually, around the election. Just hired a great um, editor, Daniel Draper, who's in this building now to, to run the news operation there. And, and in, just staffing up in Mexico as well. And those are editions writing in, in the native languages for those markets. And mm. we find there's just a ton of overlap globally in, in between our audiences in different languages. And then, you know, obviously, you know, we're covering the hell out of the Trump story, we, you know, both from Washington. But I think, you know, we are not ultimately insiders. Like, we're not trying to. And I, you know, I, I was at Politico and I loved Politico. And Politico was the ultimate sort of beltway institution. And, and that's not us. Like, we, I think, are at our best when we're coming in from the outside with stories and not, not depending on access or forcing our way into access. And so... I think, you know, we'll be covering the big political stories. But actually, when you think about, you know, I mean, everyone in our industry right now is thinking about how do you get people to trust you in this, you know, totally fragmented ecosystem where I think it's not just that people have necessarily lost trust with, with trust in the institutions that they have long relationships with, but that they look at Facebook and can you figure out where half this stuff is coming from. Right. Like the conventions are all broken. It's a very, just, it's very, it feels very chaotic. I don't think you're going to regain people's trusts with political scoops. I just think that that political environment is so poisoned and so divisive that the stories that kind of bring people together and create a consensus that, oh, yeah, you're, you know, this, this is an important story, are just not going to wind up being about Donald Trump. And so, you know, most of what we do is not, is not political. And we invest a lot in big investigations, whether it's of this corrupt cop in Chicago who allegedly framed you know, dozens of people, one of whom we were, we were able to help get out a couple of weeks ago. Or this um, huge mental health care chain in the middle, of the, you know, all over the country, United Health Services, that uh, was allegedly tricking people into inpatient treatment and sedating them against their will and holding them in, in ways that were really totally shocking. And, and that's the kind of story that we get just massive feedback from our audience, sources, tips, police officers who interact with them emailing us. I just think those are the stories where you can connect with people without the sort of filter of, of political polarization. Do you think it helps or hurts your ability to build trust as a news brand, just given that you don't have a 100-year-old legacy? Oh, I mean, we, it's like for us, I mean, it's, it's, it's both a huge benefit and, and our central challenge that when I got here in 2012, there are millions of people who love BuzzFeed. But if you ask them, do you trust BuzzFeed? It would have been like a category error. Like, do you trust Brooklyn Nine-Nine? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I like it. You know, it's, it's, a sh like, it's, it's entertainment. Right. And so... Yeah, for us, I think getting people, it's obviously a head start when you have people who like you, you know, but we've had to persuade people to trust us. And that's, that's a long process. I don't think there's, that's not a marketing trick. When you uh, expand to these international markets, you have a pretty robust UK operation. Um, you mentioned Germany earlier. I mean, how do you evaluate the 
local media markets there? Because I would I would assume that the German media market is much different than the UK media market, which is much different than yeah. The I mean, States. we've tried to. I mean, I'm stealing Janine Gibson, our our editor in the UK's term for this. But we've tried to kind of radically assimilate in these markets to hire great journalists who are of that media culture. And and you know, the, yeah, right. They're different media cultures. Whether it's like the way you write a story to your own relationship with the story that is. They're totally different, you know. Whether it's the kind of there's this kind of narrative style of French journalism, you know, the moon shone down on the <laughs> paving stones, is like your lead. It's, right. it's, it's Cecile, our, our editor in, in Paris, and I are always kind of have minor disagreements about. But ultimately, like that's you know that's her call. And so, you know, we're not we're not trying to imp- we don't try to impose the kind of forms of American journalism. But there is all but there is a kind of also a sort of global web culture. And a global and, and global forms and global memes and global ways of talking that that we are in global conversations that we're very much part of and, and try to be part of. So I think there, there's always there's always a balance there. And they're also just specific. Like there are different laws. I mean, in Brazil in particular, if a judge tells you to take a piece of content off the internet, you have to take the piece of content off the internet. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, our we you know we have a very strong sense in U.S. journalism. Either if you're going to alter something and it's in our ethics guide, you've got to explain what you did. And in, and, and there, But there are co- countries and contexts where the rules and the practices are different and that's stuff where, you know, we, we have, it's been really interesting to, to engage. But I think that, you know, we, you can sort of have a common set of values around fit being, you know, fair reporting that are not going to then extend to every formal, uh, to imposing a kind of American form on everything. Mm-hmm. Sorry, it's a little abstract, but it's no, no, no. That's really, it's very complicated. I, I, I knew nothing about the uh, judicial system in Brazil, so I appreciate. Neither that. did I, but you should, you should <laughs> ask. You, you know who knows a lot about it now are uh, are executives at WhatsApp and at YouTube, ah. and I think at Facebook, who at various times have. Yeah, I, I think it was. I think it was the uh, their, the top Google guy in the country, or maybe it was the top Facebook person who got like hauled off to jail when they were dismissive of some local Brazilian judge's order to like shut down the entire service hmm. in the country or something. Yeah, they, it's, I mean, how each of these countries reckons with with media is, is very interesting and complicated. And then, of course, you have places like Russia and China where it's kind of hard to see how you do media. Right. So huge expansion internationally um, obviously seems like a difficult thing to manage. I'm bringing up Politico as an example. They hit some road bumps, I would argue, because they lost a lot of talent within their sort of home base, within their Washington Market, and I'm curious from your perspective, with there's, when there's so much investment now from legacy operations who are behind the curve in going to digital, but now they realize, oh shit, we need to hire a bunch of people and get all of our revenue online. How, how do you compete with them when they they want to come and, and get people who are digitally native, who came up on the internet, who write for BuzzFeed? How do you sort of compete with that to make sure you maintain talent? First of all, I don't think I buy that analysis of Politico necessarily. I think you know, I think like including me, reporters come and go, and 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 there's a normalcy to people moving around a little professionally. Like I don't think the the model, just generally, that you come to work for a company when you graduate college and work there for the next forty or fifty years, I think isn't probably isn't realistic in any industry now. And so I'm not sure that I would say that having people leave after five years is a you know was sort of a huge. Was, was related. It has been related to you know what's going on over there, and I think they're in pretty good shape now. I think Carrie. I mean, is doing a great I mean maybe, job. maybe it's so, not related, but it's, um, it certainly has a, has affected it. 
is what I'm saying. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think one of the things about expansion that you see with them is like it makes a ton of sense to go into Florida and New York, big states with big businesses and big. Right. And then as you go down the line, you go to in increasingly smaller states and you have to make this call. But OK, where, where do we stop? The first ones are obvious. And I think right. that's true of any any kind of globalization. And that's something that we're sort of wrestling with also. Sorry, what was the second half of that? Oh, how do we think about like the Times trying to poach our people and stuff? Right, yes. Yeah, yeah, which, which CNN, yeah, yeah. To some degree, that's to be expected and fine. Like we also poach from the Times and, you know, there's some, there's some moving around. I mean, I think we, we feel like we're as good or better a place to work than anybody else. Partly because, I mean, partly because if, you know, if, if anybody ever approaches you for a job and says, we're looking for people who get the internet to help us with the internet, I mean, there's just not anything else right now. Mm. Uh, you don't want to, and, and, and to be part of the digital B team, at an institution that's focused on something else, you know, whatever they say, however they think about the world, if if the vast bulk of their revenue is 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 connected to this legacy platform, and this is truer in TV, it's just it's hard to, it, it's you're just put at this sort of institutional disadvantage. Mm. Not that not that if you, I mean, you're a good enough reporter, you write something on a napkin, post it to Instagram, and it'll mm. blow up. You can get you know, it, I'm not. It's not this stuff isn't um, sort of all encompassing. But I think, you know, the, our sort of value proposition to reporters has always been that you can come here. What we want is scoops and original work and great reporting that will cut through. And we're going to, you know, tell the story to a huge audience in a way that's totally native to them. And I think that that's always been that's been a pretty compelling argument with reporters. And so but of course, people will continue to move around. And that's and that's, you know, it took me a little while to get used to it. But I'm I'm used to it now for when I, you know, when I started, as an editor now, it's probably different. When, yeah. I, when, and when I, you know, when I started here, I was in the I was solely poaching people, which was so fun. And now right. and now I have to reckon with it going both ways a little bit. Mm -hmm. Is there anything you miss about being a reporter full time? I mean, you've been in an editor position oh, for a while. Report. now. I mean, yeah. I love reporting. I love working with sources. Still just get a total adrenaline rush from right. breaking news. Totally. I mean, I, I mean, I, I kind of love what I do. I love the team here and, and work, I love working with these folks and I love working with reporters and I didn't totally expect about this job. Uh, but also, yeah, I could probably perf be perfectly happy just kind of writing my blog and breaking news all right. day. So I also wanted just to plug our print issue of CJR and you co-wrote a piece with your wife in it about local news. You basically made the argument that local governments should, instead of advertising public notices in print publications, should move them to digital media, which makes a lot of sense from an audience perspective. In terms of local media, you came up writing in, about New York. Do you see any particularly interesting experiments with digital local media? Like, where, where would you be looking? Someone who runs BuzzFeed, who knows a lot about the internet. What, what sort of things are you looking at, optimistic or pessimistic about? So yeah, so local media is my huge hobby horse, as I think it is for a lot of reporters. Like, most of us came up at some level in a local market. And Right now, you know, within we're we're sitting on you know 18th Street in Manhattan, and there's probably within a mile of here there are, you know a pretty robust number of great strong new new news organizations that employ a lot of people that have some really good journalists doing serious work. Whether it's you know I'm sort of thinking like geographically, whether it's Huffington Post around here, the Intercept, Business Insider, you know, I mean you can sort of say what you want about any given institution, but. We all employ a lot of reporters, and and but they're what they share is they're all of national and international scope. And there's not a new there's not a new New York and you know this is this huge vibrant city, swimming in money right now. There's not a new there's not a large scale New York focused thing like that. I think that you think you'd see that in L.A. You'd see that in um, Chicago. The the one quite good. Um, Sort of digital, digital only publications. D DNA Info is this kind right. of interesting labor of love for Tom Ricketts, right. this 
kind of which is going through problems right now an eccentric billionaire and then and then I, you know, my wife and I built this, um, we started a local blog years ago for, as a hobby, and it was turned into a company. She, we, she sold it to Patch and worked there for a bit, which was this very, very ambitious and <laughs> totally doomed, like, vast local network. And and I think, you know, the challenge, like, I don't think anybody has come close to solving the challenge of, of local, which is that, you know, the great advantage of the internet are about scale. You can do the same work and reach a hundred times the number of people, but you know. But when you're what, what you're doing with local is is often not about scale. It's about having these intense relationships with smaller numbers of people. And so the site that I sometimes advise a bit that my wife runs, Brooklyner, does a great job. But and and I think you know has more display advertising than I've almost seen anywhere. But <laughs> that is a it's a real grind, and it's a and and one of the kind of I think secrets of local media that maybe has always gone unspoken, but was that. In the way that classified ads were have always been central, so have government notices, city advertising. These are the biggest spenders in local ad markets. Right. We know whether it's Indianapolis or New York, and and I think that there are these. It's this is such a little esoteric thing where these very powerful publisher lobbies and state capitals that have kept <laughs> these legal notices. You know, if you, know, if you, if you want to change your name or start a business, you got to buy an ad in some right. weekly newspaper that nobody reads, and that is in order to publicize it. And it you props up a lot of these little newspapers. You know, for the internet, right. it props up newspapers. Employs some journalists. That's, right. I'm not. I'm all for propping up newspapers, but if, I think if these cities want vibrant digital media ecosystems, and I think ultimately having good local media is just—it's a city amenity. It's like having clean water. It's just an important basic part of having a strong community is having strong local media that they got to recognize that, that the government you know and I, and I there are huge problems with the idea of government involvement media I would never want the federal government to be involved the favor trading corruption that can come with it are obvious and obviously a risk and something to worry about that said there's these governments were all subsidizing these dying print papers and they if they want strong local media they should probably take their advertising where the eyeballs are and there are sort of strange municipal structural reasons it doesn't happen that makes me crazy as somebody who like loves local reporting loves i love you know the hyper local stuff about what diner in brooklyn is best and i love city hall coverage and you just see it kind of withering in this ecosystem where nobody seems quite able to do anything about it my final question for you you have a podcast called newsfeed do you like podcasting you know i'm still i'm still deciding yeah. i don't know I see Julia out there kind of peering in at me. I like listening to podcasts. <laughs> um, you know, I, I also, my thing is I always kind of like scoops. Yeah. And podcasts aren't really like a medium that's about scoops. They're the opposite of scoops, in fact. Yeah. Right. Like they're about conversation. Right. They're about reflection. They're, very, they're deep and they're rich. And, and, and that Julia is like perking up a little here. They're, they're fantastic in <laughs> most ways, particularly when they're like about like right. Brazilian music. For, no, for and, and, and I love our, um, I love our See Something, Say Something podcast, Another Round, our politics podcast called No One Knows Anything. Like I, I really love and enjoy them. Like, I, I do, like, if I'm, like, talking to somebody for, like, three or four minutes, they haven't given me a scoop and I haven't been able to tweet it. Like, it makes me a little antsy. Right. So, yeah, that's that. But I, but I, think, I, I think I'm calming down. They give me a little medication every you, time I come in here. So, and, so you, had, you had Thrush and Haberman on recently. You've had Charlie Warzel. Uh, Axelrod. You've had Axelrod. Sounds like you're, you're a budding media critic out here. Having a lot you know, of journalists I, on I do think, show. I mean, the idea, the idea is to have conversations that what I think is this very interesting space right now, the intersection of tech and politics and media. Like, I think all those things are running together. Trump is a media figure, you know, who's essentially, who's, you know, taking huge advantage of these new social platforms. And I think, you know, it's just a moment when, when those three industries are really running together. And I think a lot of the really interesting questions are, are right at that intersection. Ben Smith. 
Thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, David. That's our show. As Dave would say, thanks for kicking it with us. You can subscribe to CJR, become a charter member, support the work that we do at CJR.org. We'll be back next week. Take care.